Contrary to a popular belief, I'm still in my 40s. <coughs> At least for however 12 hours. <coughs> so I want to thank you. I did find a table out in the foyer and I appreciate the, you know, the Geritol and the curlers and the, you know, the canes and the diapers and those things that will help me, help me through the years ahead and uh, <coughs> it's very kind of you. So this morning as we uh, continue in a series on uh, the gospel and being God's people who are unashamed of the gospel. Uh, There are a number of things that we need, I believe, to believe in order to be unashamed, in order to be bold with the gospel, things that, that, uh, that we need to be true. We've been walking through those over the last number of weeks. This morning, uh, we come to uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, uh, particularly verse 12, where we are told that there is no other name which is what she was talking about in this video as she shared the gospel with this other person. And really, at some point, it diverges into two gospels and whether there's other ways and other names and, and, uh, and, and Jesus isn't the only way if there can't be only one way to do anything. And so, is, is it true? And I believe that we are not going to be, obviously, we're not going to be bold with our gospel. We're not going to be <clears throat> unashamed if, if we are not sure that people need Jesus. And so let's spend some time in God's Word this morning and see if we can't get that straight in our heads and in our hearts. We're in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Excuse me. Hear then the Word of God. It says, And they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed. Uh, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Uh, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men that came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, And John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, they got the whole crew together and they were, uh, and they set them in their midst and they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, and by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning to hear your voice speaking the truth of the gospel into our lives in such a way that captures our hearts and our minds and our imaginations, that we might be bold and unashamed witnesses 
Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in a pluralistic world. Uh, Part of getting old, allergies, I don't know. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in a world that is more and more eclectic, more and more multicultural, racially and religiously, culturally diverse. We encounter people every day who believe differently, who think differently, who have different beliefs and values and ways of approaching life. And in some places, this can create, and for periods of time, it can create a really healthy marketplace for the exchange of ideas. It can be healthy to discuss and to put different ideas into exchange and to be able to tell people what we believe, what they believe, and to have a safe and respectful and loving exchange of ideas. And in that kind of a context, Christianity thrives. But in American culture, we're moving toward what would be called pluralism. Take anything and give it an ism, and it becomes a way of belief in almost a religion unto itself. And so a pluralistic society, we're moving more and more toward a pluralism, which is a form of relativism that that starts to take the posture that everyone is right. It's kind of a weird belief, really, but it really is kind of the, the, the view that is out there, and it's an expression of a relativism. All beliefs are equal. All beliefs are equally right. It doesn't matter what you believe. That's great for you. (laughs) For you. It doesn't really matter what you believe in the sense that that can be true for you. Even if it's contradictory. Even if it's mutually exclusive to other ways of believing. That's okay. It's true for you. For you. Exist in your little bubble of belief. It doesn't matter because truth is really not the core value. Pluralism is a religious relativism. It says it's okay to believe that you're right as long as you don't believe that others are wrong. That's really kind of where we exist, isn't it? It's great to believe whatever you want. People are, there's no problem with that. But as soon as you start saying other people are wrong, the culture will punish you. It's not acceptable. We have to see that to believe everything is to believe nothing. To believe everything is to believe nothing. Believing in something necessarily excludes other things. G.K. Chesterton says, this is in your bulletin under the first. He says, tolerance, at least the way it's being defined now in our culture, and even as he's writing, tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. And that's sort of the mantra of the culture. Don't tell anybody else that they're wrong. That's the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Only a quick reading of the New Testament reveals that one of Jesus' core values, as you read his teaching from, you know, pick up your Gospels and then look, read his disciples, but start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Read the four of them, and you cannot read it even quickly and not get the sense that one of Jesus' core values is absolute, exclusive truth. In some ways, you just have to say, it's Jesus' way or it's the highway. Jesus was crucified because of the things he said. 
however else you read it. Jesus was crucified because of what he said. It was, it was his exclusive belief system that said other people were wrong. When the Pharisees, Pharisees started to hear Jesus not just saying nice religious things, not just saying the status quo, but when Jesus started saying the kind of things that they knew he's talking about us and he thinks we're wrong. He thinks we're not safe. He thinks we may not be as right with God as we think we are, like to think we are. And it was that kind of speaking and teaching that got Jesus crucified. Now, it's true God had his own agenda for the cross. But humanly speaking, they nailed him there. Because Jesus believed that there are true things and there are false things. There are right things and there are wrong things. Jesus felt like he not only knew the truth, but Jesus felt like he was the truth. Right? Jesus said things like, there in your bulletin, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father. No one goes to God. No one is right with God. No one is saved. No one escapes His judgment and His wrath. No one comes to the Father except, He says, through me. Jesus says there's one truth, and it's me. Now, we can like it or not like it. We can believe it or not believe it. We can follow Him or not follow Him, but we cannot change or meddle with the things that He said. He says there's one way to God, one way to heaven, one way to life, and it's me. If Jesus lived in America today, the powers that be would crucify him again. And Maybe we don't do it the same way as they used to do it, but if you say these kind of things, they will crucify you again. Peter and John were on their way to the temple. That's what this story is about. They're on their way to the temple to pray, and there's a guy sitting at the gate as they go in who's lame. He's been lame from birth. He spent his whole life lame, and he's sitting at the door begging where he's always begging. Everybody sees him there every day. He's asking for money of people going into the temple, so he gets alms on the way in. He's sitting there begging. He's got his hand out. He's not even looking at the guys, and Peter stops and says, look at me. And the guy stops and looks at him, expecting money, and Peter says, I don't have any money. What I have, I give to you. Get up and walk. And the man stands up and walks. And it's a big to-do. Apparently thousands of people ultimately are involved. It's a big to-do. Everybody recognizes this man. He's been sitting at the gate begging for years. And it says they recognize him. This is that guy. And he's, he's literally dancing around and praising God. This man who's never stood on his legs before. And so he's, he's praising God and, and worshiping God. And Peter sees an opportunity. The crowd is gathered and people are like, what's going on? And, what's, you know, da, da, da. and Peter takes the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus. To the crowd, right? And you have to go back to chapter 3. In verse 15, Peter says, <clears throat> or 14, he says, But the, you denied the holy and the righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, He has made this man strong. You killed the author of life. There's not anybody standing in that temple as a Jew who doesn't know the author of life. Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into him. And he created life. And he created all life that's on the planet. The author of life is God himself. And Peter stands there and he tells the crowd, you crucified the author of life. 
Not only of all life right here, but the author of the the life healing that you are seeing and experiencing in this man. So he reaches down to verse 19 in the crowd and he says, Repent therefore, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You rejected the Christ and there's still time, repent. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. And so a group of temple rulers, the captain of the guard, are coming by, verse 1, where we started. They're annoyed. You know, there's a crowd of thousands. There's this to-do. They don't really like things going on that they're not in charge of. So they find Peter and John. They arrest them. And the next day, they gather all the powers that be. They put Peter and John in the middle. And they say, all right, explain yourselves. What's going on? By what power? By what, by what name has this been done? Verses 8 to 10. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to the rulers and the people, elders, and if we're being examined today concerning this good deed done to a crippled man, by what means he's been healed, let it be known to you. Listen up. All the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that life comes, wholeness comes. The one you crucified is the Christ. He is the author of life. He is God's man. And so he reaches all the way down to verse 12 and he says, concerning this name, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter makes a very narrow-minded, exclusive truth claim that he learned from Jesus and proclaims as his witness to a lost world. Understand, he says, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other Savior. There's no other name. None other has been given. None other is going to be given. There is a name that has been given. Understand, salvation is found in no one else. No one else is coming. No one else can save you. No one else is going to die for your sins. He says there is only one way to God. Whether you're Jewish or a Gentile in the nations, this is an intolerable message. This is an offensive message. I mean, this is narrow. This is right and wrong. This is... You know, this is a truth claim that excludes other things which people don't like. And as she, you know, told the Testament, it's just, you know, it just rubs against the rain. There's only the the grain, the idea that there's only one way to do anything. And I don't want to believe anything. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't want to believe anything that it might be offensive to anyone else or would exclude anybody else or that would make me, put me in a position of saying somebody else is wrong. Don't tell me what I have to believe. I'll figure it out for myself. Because our pride hates an ultimatum. We hate being told what to do. We hate to be told what to believe. But understand this. You cannot be a Christian unless you do. You cannot be a follower of Christ unless you do. Why? Because to be a follower of Christ simply means to accept and obey what Jesus teaches. Right, to follow any teacher is to accept and believe and obey what they teach. 
or you're not really following them, you're following something else and you're rejecting them. But to, to follow them, to be their follower, their disciple, is to embrace and believe, accept what they say, obey this teaching, to believe, and in this case particularly, to believe in him as he gives himself to your faith. And he defines how he offers himself to our faith. He doesn't give us a name and say, now define that any way you like. Think about that any way you want. Tell people anything you want to about me. Now, Jesus says very exclusive things. And he says things like, and and if you reject this, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. You know, Mark 16, 15, it's in your bulletin there on the second point. Jesus says things like this. Go, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The gospel is defined again and again. We'll look at it in a moment. But he says, preach this gospel, this message about me. The things that I'm saying, that, that, that there's life in me. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the one, trust in me, believe in me, follow me. This gospel, he says, go into all the world, all the nations. Don't just go to, you know, around Jerusalem. Don't just go around even Judea. You know, even cross into, you know, go into Samaria. In fact, to the very ends of the earth. Go into all the world and proclaim this gospel. This gospel concerning who I am. He says it should go to the whole creation. In the Greek, it's a word you would know. To the whole creation, it's cosmos. Right? To the whole cosmos. And this is the, what is the gospel? Jesus, what should we say? The next verse. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is a hard saying, Jesus. This is tough. This is hard stuff. In fact, Jesus said stuff, and literally the, the, the writers of the Gospels record, this is a hard saying, Jesus, and they followed him no more. And Jesus said things like that. He said divisive things. He said exclusive things. He said very self-promoting, exclusive, absolute claims concerning himself as God's Savior. People will be offended. But if it's true, if it's true, there's not a more loving and kind thing you could tell another human being. If it's not true, okay. But if it's true, if Jesus is to be taken at his word, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned if it is true. There is no more loving or kind thing you could tell another human being than this word about Jesus. The gospel to the whole creation, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 there in your bulletin, Paul says this, the gospel that I preach to you, that I deliver to you is of first importance. It's what I received from who? From Jesus and from the apostles, but from directly, Paul's case, directly from Jesus. What is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Christ died for your sins and now he was raised and he reigns. This is the heart of the gospel is that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. That's the good word we have to speak. There is forgiveness of sins in one who bore our sin in his own body on the cross that we would not have to bear it ourselves when we stand before the judgment of God. 
First Peter 3, Peter says it this way. Christ also suffered for sins. That's what he did. That's the gospel. He suffered for sins. For our sins. To, the penalty for our sins. To remove our sins. So that so through repentance they could be blotted out. He suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. And Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So John 3.18, you know, you see John 3.16 everywhere, football games, you know, everywhere. John 3.16 gets a lot of press. What about John 3.18? This doesn't make it to the placard. This doesn't make it to the poster. This doesn't make it. Two verses later, same conversation, same sermon. You should read all of John chapter 3 as a whole and as a unit. But two verses later in John 3.18, there in your bulletin, it says, whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name. The name of God's one and only Son. There is no other. There's not another one coming. There is one name, one and one only under heaven There's only one who bore our sin to make us right with God. And so 1 John 3.36, later in the same chapter, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Why? Because his sin remains on him. Sin is the issue. And we're going to see that all religions are not the same because they do not deal with the issue of sin. Jesus, who can bear it and remove it. First John, John who wrote the Gospels, John 3, he wrote all of that, quoting Jesus, and as he teaches it to churches and writes it to churches, John expresses it in his own words this way. This is the testimony. This is the Gospel. This is the message. This is what we got. This is what we proclaim. This is the Word. Listen up, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son, the one and only Son, in the name of Jesus. And he who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son does not have life. Why? Is God being mean? No, because there's only one who bore our sin. There's only one Savior. There's only one Messiah who would bear our sin in his own body on the cross. In other words, the cross is not optional. And so other religions are not adequate. It's not optional. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is such a powerful moving passage. He goes from the upper room where he has dinner with his disciples, one last shindig, one last chance to prepare them for his death. He's on his way to the cross and he knows he's going to the cross. Judas has already left the room to go betray him. And he goes with the remaining 11 to the garden and says, watch and pray with me. They're not very good at it. It's late. They're tired. But here is Jesus in that moment doing what? What does he ask God to do? He asks God to spare him from the cross. He says, if it is possible, If it is possible, let this cup pass. I would really rather not drink it. And he comes back and it says he doesn't even ask once. 
He starts to sweat blood as he sees not just death. Jesus isn't afraid of dying. He sees the cross, not just there executing him, but what he sees is the wrath of God, the cup. Read the Old Testament. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, drunk to its dregs in judgment. And he sees the cross and he sees the wrath of God that he is to bear for those he will save. He sees the judgment of God in hell and he sees it and he sweats blood and he says, God, Father, if there is any other way, if it is possible for this to pass, if we can just skip this part and you know, go back to, you know, let's do law, let's do something else. the Jewish law is adequate, let's just stick with that. If the eightfold holy path that's being developed in Hinduism across the Indian Ocean and over there, if that's going to be adequate, let's do that. If the five pillars of Islam that is coming down the pike here in another 500 years, if that's going to be able to do it, if we just keep the five pillars and make the pronunciation and give alms and pray this way and do, uh, you know, hajj and pilgrimage, and if we can do the five pillars, let's do that. Right? Jesus is saying, if it's possible that another way is, could be made, let's do that. What does God say? Well, we know he went to the cross. And the burning question there is, is did Jesus have to die <laughs> or not? Did he have to die? Was it necessary? It's interesting, Jesus himself is asking the question in his humanity, True God, true man. And in his humanity, looking at the wrath of God, Jesus himself asked the question, do I have to do this? Because I would rather not. But yet not my will, but thy will be done. And in utter obedience, he goes to the cross. Why? Because he must. See, Galatians 3, it's there in your bulletin. Galatians 3, 21 and 22, Paul puts it this way. If a law had been given that could impart life, if the Old Testament law would have done it, if people were being saved through the Old Testament law and a bloody sacrifice and the death of God's one and only Son were possible, he said then righteousness would have come by the law. Any law, any rule, any eightfold holy path or five pillars or, you know, the way of enlightenment or any number of other ways that the world is dreamed up as a ladder to climb up to God. Paul says if a law could be given, it would have. But God crucified his son. And so Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes through the law, Jesus died for no purpose. What's the point? There's other ways. Just keep the law. Just believe this. Just seek enlightenment this way. Just this way of life. Keep these, you know, just do these things. If if you could be right with God, if you could be saved by some rule, some pattern, some without the blood of Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. The whole thing is pointless. The crucifixion unnecessary. This is why Paul, when he begins the gospel, the gospel, the letter of Galatians, we were just reading those other two, Galatians 1.8 there in your bulletin. When he starts that letter, he says this, if even an angel from heaven should preach a, a gospel, a word about Jesus and salvation, other than the one that I preached, let him be eternally 
condemned. The word there is anathema, which means damned. Let him be, and then he goes on. I didn't put it there, but the next verse says, let me say it again. If anyone, anyone, even an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema to God. I ask you, is Paul mean, spirited? You know, is he just harsh? Or does he believe that any other, that there are eternal consequences to what we believe about salvation and about God? That Does he believe it is eternally catastrophic to believe a different gospel, to believe something else? The most loving thing he could do is say, is to protect the gospel. So let me just give you a few quick, as we said, applications. You know, and the first is simply this. All religions are not the same. They are not the same. I, my undergraduate degree is in religion and philosophy. And I'm, no, maybe not to the depth of many, but I've read in the Bhagavad Gita and I've read in the Quran and I've studied the major religions. I spent whole semesters, you know, listening through and walking through and reading it at the same time as I'm a young Christian and reading the scripture. And I'll, you know, it is my utter belief that all religions are not the same and they are mutually exclusive. You're going to have to pick. To do honor to the religion. Now, there are many who say, oh, there are many ways to God, and that's a whole other thing, you know, the whole elephant. You know, Christianity is reaching out, and we got a hold of the ear, and we think that's all the elephant is, is the ear. And, you know, Hinduism's got hold of the tail, and they're thinking, oh, that's all Christianity is, is the tail. And, and Islam has the trunk, and they're thinking all, all, it, all religion is, is the trunk. And, but, you know, but the truth is, you know, from God's perspective, you know, the elephant is, you know, we, we're all after the same thing. The only problem is that, that you've got to be God to say that. You have the bird's eye view. Everybody else can't see the truth, but the speaker of that one takes the, takes the layer of truth again and speaks in absolute truth that you're all wrong <laughs> and you only have a piece of it. And, and I stand in the place of God and pronounce to you the true religion, which is syncretism, and you're all right. which most people, if they take their religion seriously, find offensive. All religions are not the same. Every other religion says, climb towards heaven. Here's the path, the eightfold holy. Here are the five pillars, you know, live this life. But only in Christianity does God come down to save. He says, I will lift you up by grace through faith in a Savior who will bear your sin and make right what was wrong, fix what was broken, and will save. Only Christianity deals adequately with the guilt of sin and offers full, free forgiveness. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name. Every other name doesn't say, look at me. Every other name, whether it's you know, the Buddha or Muhammad or any other religion's leader, will point and say, go that way. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. I will give you rest for your souls. I will lift you up. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. If it is true, then the second implication is clearly this. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Right? Obey the call back in verse chapter 3 when Peter's preaching to the crowd and he says, repent therefore. Right? This, is, this is the implication. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. Here is the answer. 
Here is the Savior. Come to Jesus. And as our culture becomes more and more pluralistic and growing in its animosity and intolerance of Christianity, it should not surprise us. One thing the world will find intolerable is an exclusive claim. But Jesus said to us, John 15, there under your last point, if the world hates you, don't don't be surprised. No, it hated me first. I spoke the message first, and they crucified me. I call you to preach the gospel, you know, the end of, you know, make, you know, let your good deeds shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. You know, and as you, as you read through all those, and he talks about the prophets and, and, and the suffering that comes with an unpopular message. It was never popular. James Boyce says, if you want to be laughed at, scorned, hated, even persecuted, testify to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Say that Jesus is the only Savior, that only by believing in Him can you escape hell, and the world will fight you to the death. Because nothing is so offensive to the natural man as the teaching that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot choose our own way, that if we're going to be saved, that it must be by God, And in the way that he has appointed, there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. My friends, we are his witnesses. We are the ones called on to speak the name. We are the ones with this exclusive message. Romans 10, there you're bolting. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe on him who they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without somebody preaching, proclaiming, speaking the name, the gospel to all of the world and to all of the cosmos? How will they hear unless someone proclaims it? And how are they going to proclaim it unless they are sent? And do you not know that you are the ones sent? Jesus says, as I was sent into the world, so send I you. We are his ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal to the world through us. If there's no other name under heaven, then we should make much of the name of Jesus. We exalt the name of Jesus. He stands at the center of our worship and the center of everything that we have to say. Our worship is Christ-centered and the goal of all that we do is the exalting of His great name. There is no other name at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that uh, it is hard to live in a world that does not like what you have to say. And we get scared of speaking up in a, in a world that will punish us for saying things that they don't like. Father, we ask for boldness. We ask for confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who calls. That we might be faithful witnesses of Jesus. In whose name we ask and pray. Amen.